Well, good evening. It's good to be here. I hope you're happy to be here, to be able to get in God's Word, to grow in His Word, grow in the faith, know, know more about our Master, right? That's why we're here. So I'm going to encourage you guys to turn your Bibles to chapter 27 in the book of Exodus. We're going to continue in our study in the book of Exodus. And as you're doing that, I want to call your attention to a few interpretive principles that some of the great theologians of the past and even presently apply. And I think it's important, especially when we're trying to understand all these types and shadows that we see in the tabernacle, right? And in the courtyard and all the utensils and everything that we've been studying. So the first is going to be that the Holy Spirit, you've heard this before, is the best interpreter of Scripture, right? He is the author of Scripture, and if we want to understand the Word, we must look at the Word in light of itself. In other words, Scripture interprets Scripture, right? We've said that before, but it's important. What does that mean? Well, we have to look at what the Scriptures are saying as a whole, right? So if there are difficult passages in Scripture, and there are some passages that might be a little bit more difficult than others, we should look at those passages in light of the more clear passages in Scripture. And the majority of those pas- of Scripture passages are clear, so we should look at it in that. And <clears throat> especially when we're looking at maybe passages that might not be as clear, we look at other passages of the same category that are more clear. So these are some things that we can use to help us. And then finally, the scope of the Scriptures. The scope of the scriptures, which is that to which the entire word of God points to from beginning from Genesis all the way to Revelation, there is a a certain theme, right? And we know that that theme is the Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. So how do we see it? How do we understand it? How do we tie it all in? Okay. So as we have said before, it's all about him. So whether we're studying creation, the fall, redemption, last things, the law, the prophets, all the kings, there's so much to study in the Word of God. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Jesus was speaking to the Jews concerning himself after healing on the Sabbath and calling God his Father, right? And in John chapter 539, you know, many of the Jews wanted to kill him because he said this. And he says this in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is these that testify about me. He's talking about the Old Testament scriptures there. The New Testament hasn't been written yet, right? So all those scriptures talked about Jesus. Again, when he was on the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, 27, He was speaking to two of his disciples. They didn't know it was Jesus. And finally, he says this in verse 27, Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them the things concerning himself in the scriptures. And we will see that tonight as we did a little bit last week. So last week, we learned about the tabernacle, right, in chapter 26. And if you remember, Pastor made a comment about the specific details of the tabernacle, and he made a reference to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 5, which tell us that the tabernacle, along with all those details, right, serve a copy and a shadow of the heavenly things. In other words, all types and shadows and copies tell us something about their antitypes, which is always greater, which is always the real thing. It's that to which those types 
pointed to, right? So there are a lot of details, and as Pastor said, they all have a purpose and a meaning, okay? Everything has a purpose and a meaning. So the challenge, okay, especially when you're going to dig into the Scriptures, especially if you have to teach the Scriptures, the challenge is discerning the details that have symbolic meaning, okay, that, that really point to something greater, and those details that are just maybe ordinary or practical, okay? We have dimensions and stuff like that. There's going to be, th- like anything that is built, sometimes it's just ordinary things, right? So the discerning, that's how we have to use those interpretive principles to try to help us to understand it, okay? If you remember, this is probably about maybe three or four years ago now, when we were in the book of Revelation, we talked about the importance of so much symbolism in Revelation, but one of the things I preached on, we talked about the importance of numbers and how numbers in a book of Revelation, not just in Revelation, even in the Old Testament, okay, oftentimes have meaning, right? And if we don't understand those numbers, we're not going to understand a book that is loaded with symbolism. We're not going to get the literal sense if we don't understand what those numbers mean, all right? <clears throat> So the way we know the meaning of these numbers is by allowing Scripture, again, to be its own interpreter. That is, we look at all the times numbers are used and their context, and then it becomes a little more clear so that we can have understanding. Well, the same thing is going to be for some other things that we'll see tonight. All right? So if you guys would stand up, we're going to read Exodus chapter 27. I'll read verses 1 to 8. We're actually going to read all the chapter with the exception of the last two verses, but I'm just going to stand and read the first eight verses, and in honor of Len Leucci this morning, the title of my message today is going to be More Better, More Better, and you're going to see why I titled that More Better. So let's uh, read Exodus chapter 27, verse 1 to 8, and it says, and you shall make the altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square, and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on its four corners. Its horns shall be, shall be one piece with it, and you shall overlay it with bronze. You shall make its pails for removing its ashes, and its shovels, and its basins, and its forks, and its firepans. You shall make all its utensils of bronze. You shall make for it a grating network of bronze, and on the net you shall make four bronze rings at its four corners. You shall put it beneath under the ledge of the altar, so that the net will reach halfway up the altar. You shall make poles for the altar, poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. Its poles shall be inserted into the rings, so that the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar when it is carried. You shall make it hollow with planks, as it was shown to you in the mountain, so they shall make it. You may be seated. And then you can close your eyes. I'm going to pray. Heavenly Father, this morning, we thank you so much for the greatness of our salvation. We thank you so much for the greatness of your word that you've given to us. We thank you for the, the, uh, the ability by your spirit to understand it. Lord, And as we always do, we ask for your spirit's help, Lord God. I need it. Everyone in the pew needs it, Lord God. We have no ability in and of ourselves, but Lord, we are able because we have the living God residing in us. So it is to him, Lord God, that we ask for our strength, and we ask all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so we see here, firstly, the material for the altar, the first thing being of acacia wood, 
okay? Acacia wood, we know it was overlaid with bronze, but let's just let's look at the wood itself because you're going to see things were made of, a lot of things were made out of acacia wood. And honestly, I do not believe that there is anything significant about the wood except that they were to obey using that wood. God said specifically what to do. But I believe that it was practical being the wood that was plentiful in the region where they were, so they used acacia wood. But there are two de- details that have symbolic meaning that I believe shouldn't be overlooked that I think are very important, okay? And if you think there's something with the acacia wood that I'm missing, tell me later. I'm happy to, to, to know what that might be, but I don't think there's anything significant in the wood. But two details. The first is the metal bronze. Now, we've seen metals a lot, right? Gold, we know... Uh, um, the, the, the ark, right, I believe was all gold. There's a lot of things that we saw that were made of pure gold. Okay, so bronze does have a meaning. If you look at scripture, okay, bronze or sometimes it says brass, maybe depending on your translation, it's used in scripture typifying judgment, okay, in regards to judgment. And <clears throat> God's wrath is his righteous judgment. Gold, on the other hand, symbolizes power or wealth or kingship, okay? But bronze symbolizes judgment, just almost always used, and especially with symbolism as judgment. And then the second is, I believe, the four horns. Horns in scripture represent power and fierceness, okay? Now, one can say that there was power in the correct offering that was sacrificed and burned on this altar, not so much in the actual animal, but I believe the heart of obedience, okay, in understanding uh, one's sinfulness and obeying God to be right with him. It could also represent the fierceness of God's wrath, right? The fierceness of God's wrath, the all-powerful God. No one is going to withstand, uh, withstand his judgment, his justice that is going to be given. Okay, and then as we continue reading in Exodus chapter 27, let's look at verse 9 to 21. Let's look at the courtyard. It says, you shall make the court of the tabernacle. On the south side, there shall be hangings for the court of fine twisted linen, 100 cubits long for one side. And its pillars shall be 20, and there are 20 sockets of bronze. The hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. Likewise... For the north side and Lent, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long, and its 20 pillars with their 20 sockets of bronze, the hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be of silver. For the width of the court on the west side shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. The width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. The hangings for one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And for the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. For the gate of the court, there shall be a screen of 20 cubits of blue and purple and scarlet material and fine twisted linen, the work of a weaver with their four pillars and their four sockets. All the pillars around the court shall be furnished with silver bands and with their hooks of silver and their sockets of bronze. The length of the court shall be 100 cubits, and the width 50 throughout, and the height 5 cubits of fine twisted linen, and their sockets of bronze. All the utensils of the tabernacle used in all its service, and all its pegs, and all the pegs of the court, 
shall be of bronze. There's a lot of details to there, maybe even kind of boring. Let's be honest, just looking at all these construction details. And concerning the four sides of the courtyard, it was 75 feet by 150 feet, right? Concerning these, the four sides of the court, again, I don't see indicate any indication in the language that has symbolic meaning. It was a barrier that needed to work, right, and be sturdy like any structure. So it worked. It was practical following these details. But until we get to the gate of the court, right, to the gate of the court, this was the only entrance to the courtyard, which was the only way to get to the tabernacle, the only way to get to, as we're going to see, the altar, okay? So there was one entrance, and you had to go through the gate. Now, there are several things to take notice of here that, again, that I believe are important. And the first is the gate was on the east side of the court. And if you look at scripture, going east is often a picture of getting away from God, okay? It doesn't mean that everyone that's on the east is away from God. But when you look at it in its context, it's often a picture of getting further away from God. The tabernacle, right, was on the west side of the courtyard. So going west is a picture of going toward God. And we saw this kind of in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden in the beginning in Genesis is loaded with temple language. And I do believe it acted as the first temple, okay, within the garden. When Adam and Eve sinned, they were removed from the Garden of Eden, which acted as a temple and a tabernacle. Genesis 3.24 says, So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of the Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. So here, they sinned, and, they now, and, and the garden was where they met with God, and now they were cast away from this beautiful garden, and they were away from the presence of God and the blessing. Likewise, Lot also, when he separated from his uncle Abraham, went east toward the wicked region of Sodom. Right, So there's some symbolic meaning, I believe, there that we can take. And then also we have the colors of the gate. So like numbers in Revelation and also in the Old Testament, colors also have symbolic meaning. And I believe they do here. It is exactly like the colors of the tabernacle without the cherubim. And just like numbers again, they have meaning. Blue symbolizes the sky, okay? And it's used to talk about heavenly things, Things which are noble, it was used for the color blue. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above shows the work of his hands. The blueness is a picture of, it's supposed to look at us and represent God. Purple, as we know, is the color of royalty. God is the true king, and he is the royal mighty king of everything. And then we know scarlet symbolizes the color of blood. And we know that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. Sin is indeed costly. And if there's going to be forgiveness, if there's going to be rightness between man and God, it comes at a great cost. So that's just those details. But now I want to move to the next phase, I guess, of this message and see what I believe stands out and see what we can take from this. So as I was looking at these instructions and all the details and just kind of reading it and rereading it and rereading it, there were four things that stood out, four things that stood out to me. So as I'm reading this, the first thing that I stood out, that stood out was the problem. The problem. 
Israel was always confronted with this when you look at these details with the tabernacle in the courtyard. Man, the problem is that mankind is sinful. They are corrupt in every fiber of their being. They're as bad off as they can be because they have a sin nature that they've been inherited from Adam. And we know that sin separates us from God, that sin deserves the wrath and curse of God. And man's problem is that they have the wrath of God abiding on them. That's a huge problem. It's a big problem. And they cannot escape it on their own. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 15 to 17, it says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may freely eat, but from the tree of the, of the, of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in a day that you eat from it, you will surely die. And we know, we move on, we read chapter 3, we know what they did. They sinned, they fell short of the glory of God, and the curse of sin is on all the world and on all humanity. Isaiah chapter 59, verse 1 and 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not so short that it cannot save, nor is his ear too dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. So sin is a very, very big problem, right? And unless your sins are forgiven, it remains a very, very big problem. And this tabernacle was a reminder of that constantly. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us that the wages of sin is death. So as I'm looking at this, it is, I'm confronted with the fact that there is a big, 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 big problem, and that problem still exists today for those that are not under Christ Jesus. We are in a helpless state on our own before God. There is a need for righteousness. If you were a Jew living in back day, you understood that there was a need for righteousness, and you did not have that in yourselves. So that, brothers and sisters, is certainly, again, a big big problem. The only hope is if God will provide. Their dependence is on the grace and mercy of God. But just like us, as the church, who are under grace and mer- the grace and mercy of God, we must still obey if we want to be right with Him and want to be in fellowship with Him, right? So the next thing that I saw is, when we look at this, uh, all these details, the courtyard, the tabernacle is the provision. God provides So as much as these things were a reminder of our problem, it was also God providing for his people the way to be right with him, okay? This whole system was a way for them to be right with him, and we want to be right with our God. So if we look at what we've been reading, you will see that as great as this tabernacle was, I'm sorry, I just read that, it was a a reminder of our big problem. And it's a picture. The tabernacle was a picture of God's presence with his people, okay? God was there in his tabernacle in a, very, in tabernacle in a real way. Now, God is everywhere. We know that. But this was a, a picture of his presence. But because of sin, there was a wall around it, right? There was a wall around the courtyard. And in order to get inside this court where the tabernacle was, you had to go in the one way, 
And the first thing you saw were the colors of the gate and what they symbolize, right? And the first thing you saw through the gate, the first thing as you went there was the brazen altar, reminding you that the only way to be right is to bring your sin offering to this brazen altar and follow exactly what God had commanded in order for you to be right. You have sinned against and offended the holy God, but he is gracious. So God provided the way to be right with him, and if someone wanted to be right with him in the nation of Israel, they had to follow the rules. You had to take the animal, a male without blemish, and you had to go and you had to sacrifice and give your sin offer it and bring it before there. Okay? But this provision came at a cost, right? The life of the innocent animal whose blood had to be shed. And as difficult as this was, it was actually a demonstration of God's grace and mercy as well. But not only his grace and mercy, but also of his justice. Justice was served, the penalty for sin. It was served on that innocent animal typifying something greater. But grace and mercy are never free except for the recipients. Like, we have free grace from God, but we know it came at a great cost. So we have the problem, which is our sin, that has separated us from the Holy One. And because He is holy, He will administer justice, but we also have the provision, a system of sacrifice and offering coming from a truly repentant heart. And then as that is being done, I see the product, which is forgiveness or atonement, but only temporary, as we know. The one who humbled himself and was truly repentant would be accepted when they came to this altar with their sacrifice. They would be accepted because they obeyed, because they believed in the one way that the mighty God told them they had to do it. We see a little more of this details in Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 to 9. It says, The Lord called Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, he's talking about the sin offering that had to be given, you shall bring your offering of livestock from the herd or from the flock. If his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish, He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting, that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. So by the laying on of his hands of the head of the burnt offering, the sinner is identifying him and his sin to this slain animal. Then in verse 5, Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And this showed that the repentant sinner was protected by the blood, just like the blood on the lintel in the doorposts of the houses of Egypt. Right? And then he shall flay the burnt offerings and cut it into pieces. And the sons of Aaron, the priest, shall put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, the head and the fat, and the, on the wood that is on the fire of the altar. But its entrails and its legs he shall wash with water. 
and the priest shall burn all of it on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. And all this was done in order for them to be accepted by God and gain access to him. If they did not do that, there, were no, there was no access. So they believed this to be true, and they were, in a sense, granted life. Because true life is to be right with God, is to be in good favor with him and fellowship with him and be able to have access to him. But then I also see the perfect. If we look closely at all this, we will see that this system that was in the Old Testament, which served as a copy or shadow of the real thing, was not perfect. It had to be done, but it was not perfect. When priests are ministering daily, doing this bloody work of death, we are reminded of what it exactly is, just a type, a shadow, or a copy of something much greater and truly perfect. And who is perfect but our Lord Jesus Christ? Thank you, thank you, thank you, King Jesus, for all that you have done. So church, let's look at Christ in all of this, because we say we're supposed to see Christ and see how all this is truly about him. So first, Christ is represented by the altar. Remember that it was made of bronze, and bronze is a symbol of judgment. We know that when Christ first came in his first advent, he was the, the, the spotless lamb of God that Kate took the sins away from the world. But when he comes back, he's coming back in judgment, in the fierceness of his wrath. He will, he will save his people, and he's going to give them... He's going to take them with him, okay? But he's going to come back, and the wrath and the judgment is on him. Revelation chapter 1, verses 12 to 18, let's listen to what it says. It says, Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking with me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the middle of the lampstands, I saw one like the Son of Man, clothed in the robe, reaching to the feet, and girded across his chest with a golden sash. His head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow, and his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it has been made to glow in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in its strength. And then I love this in verse 17. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. And he placed his right hand on me, saying, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. You don't have to fear because you are mine. My wrath has already been given. The wrath of God has fell on Jesus Christ. Verse 18, in the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. He's also represented by the altar because of the sacrifice that was burned on it. The animal sacrifice was a type of Christ. 
Christ was and is the true and last sacrifice. But as we just read, he is alive forevermore. He is not the God of the dead, but he is the God of the living. So Christ was and is the true and last sacrifice. There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin. He is more better than all that other stuff back then. He is it. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 11 to 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. But if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled, sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your, your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? How much greater is Christ? Remember when John was up there uh, in chapter 25, right, sir? He said, we have Jesus. We can look at all this, but we have Jesus as the church. How great is it to live in this time with all these things, all the mysteries being revealed, knowing that we have the true and only sacrifice, Jesus Christ. 1 John 2, 2, and he himself is the propitiation for our sins. The wrath of God is totally satisfied. And not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. But not just the altar church, but also the gate of the court. Right? It was the only gate. It was the only entrance. We said that there was just one entrance to the courtyard, and in order to burn the sacrifice, you had to enter to the one and only gate, the one and only way. The gate, which was on the east side, towards God, who was on the west side. And we know that Jesus is the gate. Jesus is the door. John 14, and I love John 14, says, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. And then Thomas, and thank God for Thomas, in his humanness, right, said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. He is the only way. That's a controversial verse living in this generation. No, that is the way. There is no other way. What we are saying is the right way, not because we're smart as Christians, because this is what the Word of God says. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. John 10, 9, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is also the true high priest. 
Let me kind of wrap up with Hebrews chapter 10. I know there's a lot of scriptures, but let's just meditate on Hebrews chapter 10 for a little bit. Just reading verses 1 to 18. It says, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. It says, but in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year and also the daily ones that had to be given. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Therefore, when he comes into the world, he says, sacrifice and offering you have not desired but a body you've prepared for me. In whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book is written of me to do your will, O God. This is talking about Christ. And after saying above, sacrifices and offerings, and, burnt, and whole burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin you have not desired, nor have you taken pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will. He takes away the first in order to establish the second. By this will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ, when, church, once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, King Jesus, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering, he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws upon their heart, and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin. It's been done. It is finished, he said on the cross. This is all, this is, this is like Easter. This is, this is basic stuff that we know of the faith, but look how rich it is and how beautiful it is to know the depth, the love of God, which he has for his people. Brothers and sisters, I don't know what else I can add to this and the beauty of it and how this is all wrapped up and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. I can't say any of this to make, anything to make this better. What I can say is that wherever we are in this life, if we are in Christ Jesus, I believe I'm preaching to the choir, we are 
not temporarily blessed, but forever blessed. And if we are forever blessed, we ought to be forever grateful. Let me just read to you this hymn and we'll close because it's beautiful. You know the hymn at the cross, right? Alas, and did my Savior bleed, and did my Sovereign die? Would he devote that sacred head for sinners such as I? Was it for crimes that I had done, he groaned upon the tree? Amazing pity, grace unknown, and love beyond degree. Well, might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the mighty maker, died for man, the creature's sin. Thus might I hide my blushing face while while Calvary's cross appears. Dissolve my heart in thankfulness and melt mine eyes to tears. But drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. At the cross, at the cross, where I first saw the light, and the burden of my heart rolled away. It was there by faith I received my sight, and now I am happy all the day. I hope you are happy in Jesus Christ. We might be in unhappy situations, but it's time for God's people to think rightly. That's why we're here. Let's think rightly about our Jesus. Let's be encouraged. Let's be happy because we have the God of all creation who is our master. We call God our Father. You have the Spirit of God who is hovering over the face of the waters, present right here in, residing in each and every one of us. The wonderful word of God, which cannot be discerned by any master genius in this world if they don't have the Holy Spirit. We can understand it, and we can understand it fully because we have the Holy Spirit. We have so much. He has been given us so much. We are forever blessed. And I think I end very similar. Let's just be thankful. Let's be grateful that he would save a wretch, a sinner such as I, such as us. Let's give him thanks. Thank you, Lord, for saving my soul, for saving our souls. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. I don't know what else to say. I don't deserve to be your child. And yet here I am. By the grace of God, we are who we are and your grace towards us did not prove vain. You're a wonderful God. You're a wonderful Lord. You're a wonderful Savior. Help us, Lord God, this week. Help us to be a shining light in whatever we do, especially in our own homes, in our own homes, especially, oh, Lord, help us to be a shining light at every point of You know what I'm talking about. Lord, help us to be better for your glory. Lord, help us to enjoy you, to enjoy our salvation. We know in this world it's difficult, Lord God, but help us to be able to think heavenly-minded 
so that we can enjoy you and glorify you as we will for all eternity. Help us to do that now, even now, Lord. Help us to get out of the way and choose to do the right thing. Lord, we thank you, and we thank you some more. In Jesus' name, amen. As a child, you look to your father for confidence and security. And um, praise those that have had that in their lives, who still have that. Um, and for those that are seeking it, we never need to look to an earthly individual, even though we may have had a great example, because we have a heavenly father that shows us the perfect example of what a great father should be. So I pray as we stand, um, we're going to open up the hymnals, hymnals, the hymnals to 139, and thank God for his faithfulness, because great is thy faithfulness. 139. There's only three verses, so we're going to sing them all, and I pray that with the same heart, we will sing in glorious worship to God. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness, great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Summer and winter and springtime and harvest, Sun, moon, and stars in their courses above. Join with all nature in manifold witness to thy great faithfulness, mercy, and love. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with ten thousand beside. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. 
All I have need is thy hand has provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. God bless you.